0: Hey everybody, how's everyone doing? I hope you had a great day. I know I did. I uh, got a great show ahead for you. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next two hours, hour and a half, two hours. We're going to go a little extended today because um, uh, because the guest requested. There's a lot. He has a lot of things to share with us. Anyway, I'm Charlotte. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California. Which means if you do have a paranormal need, or you think you might have a paranormal need. We have access to clergy, we have access to our psychics, we have access to you. It may take us a while to get out there because California is a huge state. But just be patient because like I said, you know, we could always have one of our our mediums call you to either figure out what's going on or you know help help you out, get everything calmed down. But again, we do work with in certain cases we do work with clergy as well, depending on what's going on with the cases. Okay, if you're watching today from Facebook. Um, we have a big Facebook presence. We have several pages. So if you're watching from either my, my profile or California hot School events and you haven't done so yet, you like what you hear, click that follow button. Okay. We're always looking for followers. In addition, if you like what you hear, show, show me some love, hit that, hit those like buttons. Okay. Hearts and all that stuff. Because the more you do it and the more it shows up, the more, the higher I go on the algorithm. Works the same way for YouTube. We have a YouTube page where there's 516, or 569 videos, I think, sitting over there now. So if you look in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, let's see if I can do this. Nope, that's not the right. I'll do it this way. Sometimes I'm such a ditz. If you look at that spot right there, your bottom right-hand corner, you'll see a ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. That's the mascot. you click on that, that'll pop up this, that subscribe button. Cause we're always over YouTube looking for subscribers. We're trying to build up, right? That's the whole point of it. All is to build up, build up, build up, build up. So yeah, if and that's only if you, even if you didn't like what you heard and you want to just join to harass me or <laughs> or get one of your enemies and someone you can't stand to watch the show, we're good. You we can do that, but that would really help me out a lot. Uh, we do air every night, Monday through Sunday, on these channels on, on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, you know. Four or five different channels plus we have an rss feed that goes out all over the world so it's kind of cool so yeah like i said and if you know if you're kind of apprehensive about signing up take a look at um the, the youtube videos because i'm a journalist i don't always like to do paranormal things okay so i like to vary it so check it out i'm sure there's a topic that you guys will like that you'll find you like okay that being said, my guest tonight is Ralph Ellis. We're going to be talking about length. Okay, so um, I'm a big fan of King Arthur and the Round Table legends. I've, I've relatives over in the UK. You know, I got to go to Canterbury and all these different places. It was cool, and so I'm just so excited to have him on to talk about the Holy Grail and that stuff. Plus, he's going to be talking about about Jesus Christ and in, 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 in relation to all this other stuff. So it's going to be an interesting interview. I suggest, like the like the, like the thing says, grab some popcorn, put your feet up, enjoy the ride. So without further ado, I'm going to bring Mr. Ellis in, and he can tell you about himself. Here we go. Hello.
1: Greetings. Good to be with uh, you, shot uh,
0: I'm, I'm out of breath now. <laughs> All that chit-chat. Tell me about you, sir.
1: Oh, well, I'm... Um a polymath i suppose i've um, been involved in many industries from computing mm-hmm. to aviation and i've written 14 books so far on these topics mostly about uh, revisionary theology i tend to call it which is trying to find um evidence for the uh, stories the biblical stories in the historical record uh, i've done a couple of books on the uh, megaliths you know the pyramids and the hinges mm-hmm. and things of that nature um and just then as a a little extra sort of the icing on the cake uh i did this book on arthurian legend because mm-hmm. i kept coming across all of these hints to arthurian legend within the work that i was doing and so that sort of dare I say, rewrote Arthurian legends. So uh, any purists out there, you might be a little bit shocked because this is a slightly different story to the normal Arthurian history. So, uh, yeah, that's kept me busy for about oh, four, 40 years or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, quite some time. My first book came out in 1997,
0: I think. So it says, uh, from what I'm seeing from your, your name it says you're a cardinal, correct?
1: Yeah, well, I've joined into this um, um, pronouns business. You can call yourself whatever you want nowadays, apparently. So, I, I tend to have a different pronoun on every single um, YouTube I do. So today, I'm a cardinal. Just that know, works. Why not?
0: Scared me for a second there.
1: <laughs> we can be what we want to be wow, nowadays.
0: You know, growing up Catholic, I was holding when I saw cardinal. I was like, "Whoa!" You know.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: I better be really good today. No, I don't
1: think the Catholics would approve.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So um, in your studies, I know we're going to be talking about the actual king, the king of kings, right? We're going to be talking about that the first half of the show. What did you find parallel-wise? Because I know, I mean, if, if you look through history, there are parallels. They're thin, you know, out of the Bible and whatnot, but there are parallels. So what did you find the most interesting about, say, the Arthurian legend parallels?
1: There, there were quite a few hints when I was going through the uh, sort of gospel stories um, that these stories were linked and the history was linked. Um, and uh, it sort of hinted that I should really do a deep dive into what in history was all about because I didn't actually understand it at that point. Like most people, I just watched the films. I'd read the books, um, read a few hadn't read it much in the way of manuscripts at that point i just read um wolfram von eschenbach and i hadn't really taken in the story as i should have done Mm -hmm. it's very easy to read a story and skip over the mm, the elements that don't actually make sense because you cannot put them into the story properly um but later when i read it all again it it made it made the story look very different indeed so it's it's a good illustration that you have to know the subject very well before you can understand what it's talking about.
0: Absolutely. All right, let's um, let's talk about the greatest king of all.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, how does he come into this? Which is okay. is quite interesting. It's it's because of all this work. I wrote five books on the New Testament, looking at the historicity they call it of the New Testament. They're trying to find it in the historical record, and I believe I. Now, we're not going to go through this in any great detail because that's a two-hour talk on its own. Uh But I think I found uh, the gospel story in the history of Edessa, uh, which is a city-state up in uh, northern Syria, first century, uh, a small principality. Um, And there just seemed to be a lot of connections there. So the first thing we really need to know is that well, as you just said in your introduction, the king of kings, that Jesus was a king,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a real king, not a pretend king. So not a, a, a pauper carpenter, you know, a pauper prince of peace, as They like to cast him, but a real king, a king of the Jews, which that's his title on 36 occasions in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And then he's called the Christ and the Messiah. Well, the, the Christ just means king, basically. It's the mm-hmm. anointed priest king of the jews um so yes that's a secular king just oh. as king david was the messiah and cyrus the great was called the messiah in in kings and chronicles so yes th- those titles apply to real kings and that's what, one of the reasons one of the many many reasons why i think jesus was a real king uh, the second thing we need to know, we'll, we'll just spend 15 minutes or, or so on this before we launch into Arthurian uh, legend. Okay. But the, um, the second thing we really need to know is that Odessa has been deleted from history. And that's why you cannot find it in the biblical record or the historical record. It's just sort of not there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and that was done on purpose. And we know this by a comparison between Josephus Flavius and uh, Moses of mm-hmm. Um, So Josephus Flavius being the Judaic historian, the primary historian of first century history of the Near East, basically. He wrote mm-hmm. everything that happened in that region in the first century. And then Moses of Corrine, uh is a Syriac uh, historian uh, from a bl- little bit later. He's about seventh century but writing similar stories, um, but from a a Syrian perspective, and they had a different perspective, um, Mm -hmm. mainly because they had been cut off from Western Christianity. So um, that was cut off by the Council of Nicaea, by the Council of Chalcedon, and then by the Iron Curtain of Islam, which shut off Western Christianity from eastern christianity completely uh both from eastern greek orthodox and from eastern syriac christianity so whatever they were doing in rome they had no control whatsoever over what people in the east were writing about jesus and the gospel stories Mm -hmm. and that's an advantage because now we get two different perspectives we get the roman version the josephus flavius uh, version Um, But over in the east, they had some slightly different stories and some uh, different priorities, you might say, because uh, these Odessan kings were their kings and they wanted to write their history. And from this, we know that Edessa has been deleted from the works of Josephus. Well, you you can tell that by just keying in Edessa and doing a search and it'll come up with nothing found. And then you can king in the uh, kings of Edessa, which is King Abgarus and King Manu. And again, it'll say nothing found, Hmm. which is unusual because Josephus Flavius knows everything that's happening in that region. So why does he not mention them? Um, Well, we come to the uh, war uh, between Aretas and um, uh, Herod Antipas. Mm -hmm. Now, this is biblical, which is why this is interesting, because this is the story of John the Baptist. Um, Everyone knows the story of John the Baptist. He got beheaded because he was complaining about a marriage between Pharsalus, um, sorry, between uh, Herodias and um, Herod um, Antipas. Mm -hmm. And because he complained about this marriage and said it was illegal, he managed to get his head uh, uh, cut off and taken on a platter um, to Herod. Well, that little story is not just in the biblical story in the Gospels. It's also in the works of Josephus Flavius. Um, And he mentions it because it involved the kings of this region. And uh, what he says is that King Aretas got upset with this because it was his daughter that was spurned and sent home Mm -hmm. um, during this. So he wasn't very happy. So he made war upon herod antipas and josephus says of this king aretas made war between him and herod antipas and he raised armies on both sides and they prepared for war and when they had joined battle all of herod's army was destroyed by the treachery of some fugitives who although they were from the tetrarchy of philip which is syria they joined with aretas's army To defeat Herod Antipas. So this John the Baptist business, there was actually a big battle over this. It wasn't just um, John the Baptist getting beheaded. There was a huge great battle. Um, But the battle involved some strange fugitives from Syria. And you have to wonder... Come on, Josephus, you know everything that's happening in this region. Right. Why can't you tell us who these fugitives are? You know, he's he's holding back here. There's some information he's not giving us. Mm-hmm. So how do we find that information? Well, we go to Moses of Corine, who's a Syriac uh, historian, chronicler, and he gives us the same story, but he gives us the different angle on this, the different perspective.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he says, King Abgarus of Edessa allied himself with King Aretas of Petra and gave him some auxiliary troops to make war upon Herod Antipas. Being sharply attacked, Herod's Herod's troops were defeated thanks to the help of the brave Edessans. As if by divine provenance, vengeance was taken for the death of John the Baptist. Same story, very different perspective. So here we suddenly find out who these fugitives are that, mm-hmm. that uh, Josephus won't tell us about. They were the Edessans. So the Edessan monarchy were involved somehow in this sort of gospel story because why were they there? Because, you know, Edessa is up in northern Syria. Sure. Uh Nowadays it's up in... Um, Uh, Anatolia but in those days it was known as Syria basically. Um, Well why were the combatants there? We know why King Aretas was there. He was there because his daughter had been sent home. His daughter had been spurned by Mm -hmm. the Judean king. But why were the Edesans down there? The only other thing that happened at this very time is that John the Baptist managed to be beheaded. It seems highly likely, therefore, that's why the Odessans came down to this battle. It seems highly likely that John the Baptist was involved with this Odessa monarchy. Mm -hmm. And that was the basis of my book, uh, Jesus, the King of Edessa, because I link him up with this monarchy in the north of Syria. So... We need this background knowledge because, of course, when we come on to our and legend, we're going to be talking about various battles and uh, events between important kings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And here we have stories about important kings. Now, you might not see the link at present, but <laughs> you will when we start talking about um, King Arthur. The other thing, just very quickly, um, on the uh, gospel side of the story. Mm-hmm. is what was the gospel story? Was it just a story about, you know, carpenters and shepherds and poor people? Mm-hmm. Or was it a story about kings, empires, and the control of empires? Mm-hmm. I think it was the latter. And that's, again, what I've proven in my book, Jesus, King of Edessa, that this was an important story with important people about important events, but it's been rather covered up by Rome, who didn't want you to know what it was actually talking about. Now, one of the interesting uh, proofs of that is the parable of the vineyard owner. A lot of these parables don't make a a great deal of sense if you think about them. Again, if you read these parables quickly, you can sort of just understand them and say, yes, oh, okay, yes, it's, it's a parable. But if you sort of look at the parable a little bit deeper it doesn't sort of make any sense Mm -hmm. and this is one of those that doesn't make any sense the parable of the vineyard owner and it says um there was a there was a lord who planted a vineyard so he's a a landowner Mm -hmm. and he rented it out to a tenant and went to a far country so he's an absentee landlord and when the harvest came he sent his servants uh, to the tenant so he could receive his rent But the tenant took his servants and he beat one and killed another and stoned another. So when the absentee landlord um, comes to the vineyard, what will he do to these tenants? Well, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and let his vineyard out to other tenants who will pay their rent on time. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a Jesus, (laughs) that's a parable from the from the lips of Jesus, and you've got to say, um, okay, why is Jesus promoting the rights of absentee landlords? Right. To kill his tenants if they don't pay their rent. Where's the, you know, Jesus man of the people in that parable? Right. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's... It yeah. doesn't
1: make sense. You know, people repeat these parables without thinking about them, but it doesn't make any sense.
0: No, it
1: so how can we make sense of this? Why is Jesus uh, lauding the rights of, of absentee landlords to get rent from their tenants? Well, I think like many things in the New Testament story, the story is correct. It's our interpretation is wrong because we've been led down the wrong road by mm-hmm. some small little changes um, to the story. And all we need to do to actually find out what it was talking about is we need to replace the tenant with mm-hmm. Rome and we need to replace the landlord with the Odessan king.
0: Okay.
1: And then we read it again. And it says, because remember, Odessans. Controlled all of Syria and they right. controlled most of Judea in right. the. Um, late first century from the eighty fifties 50s onwards mm-hmm. so in effect they were the landlords so we read it again and it says the there was an indescent king who had lands in judea and he let it out to the romans and went to a far country he went back to edessa and when the harvest drew near he sent his servants to the romans so he might receive his rent
0: mm-hmm. for
1: his lands but the romans took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another so when the Edesan king of these lands comes down to Judea, what will he do to these wicked Romans? He will miserably destroy these wicked Romans, and he will let out his lands to another tenant who will pay their rent. Now you can see what the parable was talking about. Um, it was a complaint that the Romans were, were on Odessa lands, they considered these to be their lands, but Mm -hmm. Rome was occupying all of the Near East, all of Judea and all of Syria, Um, and these wicked Romans wouldn't pay their rent for being there. Not only that, but they actually went to Edessa and said, we want rent from you, (laughs) so this was the tenant, the tenant asking for rent from the landlord. And wow. that's what this story was all about. It was about a tax dispute, because there was, in real history, there was this tax dispute between the Edessans and the Romans.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what the gospel story is talking about. But you wouldn't know that if you just read the the story very quickly.
0: Right.
1: And that's what we want to explore when we come on to Arthurian legend, because we have a problem with Arthurian legend and and do break in. If you've got any questions, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. just shout yeah, out. Yeah,
0: I'm fascinated by what you're saying because uh, I I agree 100% because, you know, any book really, you have to take a real hard, hard look at it because, I mean, there's, there, there's, there's metaphors and parables and everything. And so you have to sort through all that stuff. And what you've done is incredible by being able to match all this stuff up.
1: Yeah, um, but you've got to – read these stories with with very open eyes because if you have any prior beliefs about what this story is supposed to be mm-hmm. about you will never see the underlying story right because your beliefs will cloud your vision and you will not see it mm-hmm. um now i come from a very open-minded background uh, i like to sort of call myself like a, a gnostic atheist um so it's A Gnostic is someone who knows, whereas an agnostic is someone who doesn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I can view these stories with open eyes because it doesn't really matter to me whether the story has changed a little bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't have a dog in this fight very much. Mm -hmm. But the odd thing about my work is that I've proved that like 90 percent, 80 stroke 90 percent of the gospel story is correct. That's cool. not quite in the way that people I- I expect like we've just seen with the parable right. there is a change in the um the power and influence of the people involved right so we're not talking about pauper princes of peace and carpenters we're talking about mm-hmm. important people aristocrats and kings and things of that nature uh and there's a slight change in the chronology but apart from that the story is the same
0: when you and talk it's amazing about-
1: it's amazing yeah. what you can do if you slightly change the story. How you right. can miss what right. it's really talking about.
0: When you talk about Christ being the the one the one and only King, what's your definition of that?
1: Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's it, well, he was known as the King of Kings, so yes, but it, that was a fairly common title, right? Um, and the Odessian monarchs were were titled very much the same, um, but you know, important kings often called themselves the king of kings right um so yeah he wasn't the one and only of course but um he was regarded in that fashion by many people because he was a very influential character he was involved in this massive uh revolt against rome Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is the subject of the arthurian story of course um so this is where we come into the arthurian side of this and as I say, there's a problem with Arthurian legend, a bit like Jesus being missing from the historical record. Nobody has ever found Jesus in the historical record properly, right. whereas I have because I say he came from Odessa. We'll go through that later. Sure. But the King Arthur story is exactly the same. He's missing from the historical record, and Arthurian purists will say, "No, no, we've, we've, you know, we've got these texts, we've got these manuscripts, and they, they." give us the story of King Arthur, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Unless you actually read the, the original manuscripts, you'll suddenly find that what people write about King Arthur is not actually often correct. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of misinformation running around, especially if you're watching films um, or reading <laughs> lay books, which um, don't give saying- you...
0: Uh, obviously, obviously, his life was not like Camelot. I mean well, just leave yeah.
1: it well yeah. no, it was, but but not in the fashion um that they portray right okay. b- because they're looking for a fairy story, basically. That's what you know Hollywood is all about. So right. a Hollywood film is never going to give you the truth. But neither do many fairly deep investigations, they don't give you the truth either, so they gloss over some of this as well. So you really have to go into deep manuscript searching before you will find this, because um, he's missing from the historical record. So the earliest um, chronicler we get is Gildas, uh, and he's fifth or sixth century. So he's right in the Dark Age time when King Arthur was supposed to be ruling Britain. Mm -hmm. And he never mentions King Arthur, which is odd. Mm-hmm. And then the Venerable Bede, he's eighth century. Mm-hmm. Uh, he writes uh, a history of uh, of Britain, and he doesn't mention King Arthur either. Is and, there still a
0: search on real quick? I don't want to interrupt, but is there still a search on for Arthur's grave because they don't even know where he's buried?
1: No, uh, well they won't. <laughs> okay. I, I will show you why they won't. No, okay. uh, nobody knows where he's buried because nobody has any evidence that he ever lived. Right. And people will say, oh, no, the manuscripts do mention him because they have this idea from uh, written history and, and um, even from Hollywood that that there is mention of, of King Arthur. And then, then, of course, my response is, well, give me a quote from Gildas or Venerable Bede. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's probably the first time they've ever looked it up for real, and suddenly they can't find any mention of King Arthur. Um uh, nennius does the same he's ninth century now he mentions a dux Bolorum,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a uh, warrior um uh a warrior lord uh what do you call him a warlord is what mm-hmm. you would call him a dux Bolorum, uh known as arthur but he doesn't mention the king arthur mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: there's no camelot there's no table there's no knights there's right. no guinevere there's no right lancelot there's no real arthurian story in any of this even though he mentions this warrior called uh, arthur um what they're doing actually is when they mention this warrior called arthur they're probably actually talking about hercules because when we come on to the next uh when we come on to Geoffrey of monmouth the birth um conception and birth scene for king arthur Mm -hmm. is actually the conception and birth of Hercules. So they're using Greek legend uh, for the birth of King Arthur. So you can see how they're working mythology into real Mm -hmm. history sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, Nennius, we're we're ninth century. Then we come to William of Mountbury and his first book, uh, Chronicle of the English Kings, 12th century, uh, 1125-ish, roughly. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't mention King Arthur again. He just mentions this dux Bellorum, this warlord. Henry of Huntingdon, again, 1130, um, doesn't mention the King Arthur. Um, <clears throat> so we're we're all the way up to the 12th century. You know, the King Arthur guy was supposed to be 5th century or 6th century. Mm-hmm. Dark age king. We've arrived all the way to the medieval period here in the 12th century, and we still have no King Arthur, he's missing for like 600 years and we still don't have the story of King Arthur and then
0: it, it reminds me, this whole thing reminds me of that pharaoh in Egypt was it a female pharaoh? Uh, and, Hatshepsut yeah, and they took all, everything's gone on her they took her the, off all this stuff yeah, because this is what this reminds me of
1: yeah, they did, they did this quite a lot with people they didn't like right like the Jesus character, because obviously Jesus had his opposition as well as his supporters, mm-hmm. and the opposition won that particular battle, and so they delete you from history. Yeah. The Odessans had the same problem. We've just looked at it. The Odessans were deleted from history. Right. Well, King Arthur has been deleted from history because nobody wanted you to know who this guy was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because he is there, but it's not quite the story that people expect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So... For 600 years he's missing, and suddenly we get uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth and Walter of Oxford, uh, and they are 1135, so only five years after Henry Huntingdon, mm-hmm. and suddenly we get the entire Arthur, Arthurian story. All of a sudden, complete, except for there's no table and there's no Lancelot, but you know, pretty much, other than that, it's the entire. Um, Arthurian story suddenly arrives for no good reason with no backstory with no history to it it's suddenly there and you have to ask yourself why how did that suddenly happen Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, and it's not even a a Welsh sort of story I mean Geoffrey of Monmouth um, supposed to have come from Monmouth which is on the Welsh borders basically Mm -hmm. Uh, but he was a Norman he wasn't uh, he wasn't Welsh Mm-hmm. And both Walter of Oxford and Geoffrey of Monmouth say that they got the story from Normandy and Brittany, northern France, because that's where Monmouth came from. He was a. Uh, this was during the uh, just after the Norman invasions, of course. Mm-hmm. For people who are not familiar with uh, British history, so ten sixty six, uh, just like um, what's that sixty odd years before, right. uh, was the Norman invasion of of Britain. Mm-hmm. And so these Normans came over from northern France and they took over the whole of uh, sort of southern Britain initially and, and, and pretty much actually all the way up to the Scottish borders eventually. And remember that the Normans were not French. The Normans were Vikings. Yes. These were red-headed Vikings. So uh, William the Conqueror, who came over in 1066. He was a redhead because he was a Viking Uh, and they took over Britain. So that's why Monmouth, Geoffrey of Monmouth was a Norman on the Welsh borders between England and Wales. Uh, And it's from these two that we get this dramatic story. And they're both giving the same story. So Walter of Oxford is a bit more prosaic. It's just a, a chronicle of King Arthur. Um, whereas Geoffrey of Monmouth turns it into a very interesting sort of story, a little bit more dramatic. Mm -hmm. And his became the much more popular of the two stories, of course. So that is the King Arthur story, suddenly arrives. But Mm
0: -hmm.
1: other people were less than impressed. So again, you know, the uh, Arthurian purists will say, well, there, you know, we've got the history of King Arthur. But only like 25 years after Monmouth and Oxford, we get William of Newburgh, <clears throat> who writes the history of English affairs, uh, which is a very good history of England, uh, written in 1160. And he savages um, Geoffrey of Monmouth uh, about his story about King Arthur, because he says it's a tissue of lies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So not everybody was on board with this Arthurian business by any means. So William of Newburgh says, uh, and I'll quote here for uh, readers and listeners, uh, he says, Only a person ignorant of ancient history can for a moment doubt how impertinently and impudently Monmouth falsifies the history in every respect. Whatever Geoffrey has written is a fiction Invented either by himself or by others and promulgated either through an unchecked propensity to falsehood or a desire to please the Britons. Mm -hmm. For how could the elder historians who were ever anxious to omit nothing remarkable and even recorded trivial circumstances pass by unnoticed so incomparable a man and such surpassing deeds as King Arthur? Mm -hmm. How could they, I repeat, by their silence, suppress King Arthur, a British monarch who was superior to Alexander the Great? Mm. And that's perfectly true. He's hit the nail on the head there. If we have this uh, well-known, wealthy, influential, powerful monarch Mm -hmm. uh, called King Arthur in Dark Age Britain, how on earth could you uh, omit his story from all of the other chronicles that came before.
0: Right,
1: It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. So we have a problem with Arthurian legend. Um, there was no Dark Age King Arthur. And he couldn't have been in the Dark Ages, the 5th, 6th century, be- because Monmouth says he was fighting the Romans. That there were no Romans uh, in Britain at that time. They left in about 400 AD Um, because Rome was under attack. They were sort of retreating. The Romans had left Britain at that time. So we had this hiatus with no Romans and we kept getting attacked in Britain by various people coming across the uh, North Sea. And on two occasions, the Britons called to Rome and they made appeals to Rome for help and Rome would send a legion because they didn't really have many people to spare at that time. And they would send a legion to help them out and then withdraw again. And then they got into trouble again and they sent another legion. And they said, no, sorry, you're on your your own. We're off. So by 405 uh, AD, there were no Romans. So King Arthur could not have been fighting Romans in Britain. Do you think
0: that... Sorry to interrupt. you think that... The legend of King Arthur is really like two or three different kings or or warriors put together?
1: No, he's one person, but he's not who you would expect him to be. (laughs) And and to get a clue uh, about who he actually was, we need to look at the broader picture of who King Arthur is and the the legends that um, were written about him. And the other odd thing, which people won't know about, is that uh, King Arthur is a European character. So we get Arthurian legends from Germany, from Holland, from Italy, from Greece, from Scandinavia, from Scotland, uh, from Italy. The only place we don't get any Arthurian legends from is from Britain. Hmm. (coughs) There are no uh, chronicles of King Arthur uh, from Britain all the way up until we get to Mallory right. with Mort de Arthur. Okay. So we get uh, manuscripts from Germany: Lancelot, Tristan, Eric and, e, and and Wayne, Tristan again, another one, Daniel von Blumenthal, mm-hmm. uh, Parseval, of course, the famous Parceval from Wolfram von Eschenbach. From Holland, we get uh, History de. De, um, van de grail we get roman and uh walwain um and who do we get oh italy we get tristano La Tavolta, ritonda philippo all sorts of them these are all arthurian manuscripts <clears throat> um and of course we get all the french ones we get um uh, chretien de troyes with his percival and lancelot Um, And then the Vulgate cycle, which is mainly, again, from Normandy, from northern France and so on. Mm -hmm. So this is looking more like a European story, a European history, rather than the British history, because there are no early British manuscripts that mention King Arthur. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's odd. And then we come on to an even odder thing, which is... Where is the earliest sculpture of King Arthur? Now, that's an interesting little problem. Uh Uh, So where can we find the very early? And this is quite early. This goes back to the Norman era. This is uh, 12th century, so probably about 1180s or so. Very, very early sculpture of King Arthur and the story of 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 king arthur with guinevere and mordred and everything else so where would that be
0: mm-hmm.
1: tricky you know are we talking about glastonbury tintagel camelodnum you know the, the t- traditional places where we think right. king arthur came from um no the uh, answer is if i do a quick screen share so sure. i'll share screen select a window, I'll select that window and share. Now that should come up, hopefully.
0: I see it, and now let me click over there. Good.
1: Okay. Um, so, yes, this is the earliest there we go. image of King Arthur we have. This is um, all the knights of the round table here, um, besieging the castle at the top. You can see the castle at the top. In the castle is Guinevere. Um, although she's called Wendalee here, but you can hear the name Guinevere in that, and Mordred in the castle. And you've got all the knights, because their names are above them, so we know they're all the knights. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you see my uh, cursor going round and round? No. Ah, okay. On the left, second from the bottom is King Arthur. Okay. And then the rest of them are the knights of the round table. Oh,
0: that's cool. Now, yeah, sorry. That's really cool.
1: Yeah. Um, but where is this? <laughs> this is um, on Modena Cathedral in Italy.
0: Interesting.
1: So the earliest sculpture we have of King Arthur comes from Italy, uh, which is not where you would expect it to come from. <laughs> no,
0: absolutely not.
1: Um, so yeah, just zooming in, we can zoom in on King Arthur. Oh, let me make that a bit bigger. There we go. That's King Arthur.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: Sitting on his horse, he's the only one that doesn't have chain mail on. Right. And all right, of right. the knights you might have been able to see it on the previous picture. All the knights are in Norman armor, of course, with chain mail and the kite um, shields and so on. It's all um, depicted correctly in. norman fashion because this was the norman era uh and then here at the top is here's the castle that we were looking at before Mm -hmm. um and guinevere is on the left sort of weeping i think in the castle by the looks of it and she's called wing Winlogi. you can see that over her Mm -hmm. head and the other guy is mardoch that's um uh king arthur's son um so yeah, that's interesting. That's where <laughs> that's where Arthurian legend comes from. And we can we can do this again because um oh no, we didn't want that one.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted that
1: one. Um this All is right. the second sculpture of King Arthur, and it's exactly the same. It's actually got a bit more detail on this one, it's the same as the one we've just seen. Um, again it's very early it's the 1180s so it's 12th century uh, with norman knights and this one is on the cathedral at bari in wow. southern italy ah okay so, so really, we
0: we're, I mean, so, so really it's like you say he's more european as opposed to british
1: yeah completely okay. we we don't get any of this from Britain. so' it's right. all all from italy and here's the third one And you can see it says Rex Arterus, King Arthur. This is a nice mosaic. I'm not sure what he's actually riding because um, it's got cloven hoofs, whatever he's riding. So he's not riding a horse. He's riding, I don't know, something like an antelope or something. (laughs) I I don't know why Arthur would be. We just
0: found the jackalope, kids. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um,
1: Because the the same mosaic has a horse with proper hooves on it. So... Uh Mm -hmm. Um, For some reason, they gave this one cloven hooves. But anyway, this is King Arthur. And where's this? This is in Otranti. Otranti is in southern Italy. (laughs) And again, this is very early. This is 12th century. So, yeah, King Arthur is not exactly um, a British hero. Um, and the reason for this, let me just uh, stop share. Okay. Where do I do that? Down the bottom here. Stop share. Yeah. Okay,
0: we're back.
1: Okay, um, so that
0: works. It's the first time I've ever done that.
1: Yeah,
0: that's pretty straight true.
1: back again. Right
0: on. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, we have a problem with with the Arthurian story, and the solution to this story, although it's a bit bit of a challenge for some people if, if oh. they're Arthurian purists and bit of a challenge for people if they are fun, fundamentalist Christians. But right. uh, there we go. The answer to this is the date that this all happens.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we're talking about 12th century. We're talking about Geoffrey uh, of Monmouth in 1135 uh, was when he wrote his, uh, his uh, story. Uh, History of the, uh, no, what was his called? It was the History of the Kings of Britain, was uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth. And um, so 1135, that is just five, six years after the formation of the Knights Templar. This was a Knights Templar story. Because a, a funny thing happened on the way to the Crusades. Um, You know, I've been talking about Jesus might have been associated with Edessa in northern Syria. Right. Well, the history of the Crusades is that in 1096, um, Count Baldwin of Boulogne was the leader of the First Crusade. And they set off and they went across Europe uh, through Constantinople, through Anatolia. And they got to the sort of northeastern part of the Mediterranean where they're supposed to head south down towards Jerusalem?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Well, they didn't. The first crusade did not go to Jerusalem. The first crusade carried on heading east, and it went across the Euphrates, and it went to Edessa. So the first city that was liberated from uh, Islamic control in uh, 1098 Mm -hmm. was Edessa.
0: Well,
1: and you've got to wonder what on earth were they doing in Odessa? And remember, I didn't know anything about this when I was writing my Jesus King of Edessa. I'd never right. heard of the because I, I wasn't researching Arthurian legend at that time. So I didn't know anything about this. So I wrote this big, long story, 600 page book about uh, Jesus coming from Edessa. And then I find out that the first crusade doesn't go to Jerusalem. It goes to Edessa. Why would they do that? Well, the obvious answer, I think, from my point of view, is that they knew that they might find something interesting in Edessa. If they had known something about the story, which I've been writing about, you know, Mm -hmm. Jesus, King of Edessa, then where are you going to go if you want information about the gospel story? Are you going to go to Jerusalem or are you going to go to the source, potential source, source, source? Right. of that information, which is Edessa.
0: Right.
1: And if if you're going to want anything like, I don't know, artifacts, uh, treasures, uh, history, genealogies, you know, anything of that nature, you're going to go to Edessa. And, of course, what did they do as soon as they went to (coughs) Edessa? They set up the Knights Templar. So the Knights Templar was set up in 1119. Um, And they were ratified by the um, church in 1129. And the Knights Templar were obviously set up to maintain secrets. That was the whole point of the Knights Templar. It was an initiatory uh, organization where the secrets were held at the top. And you're not going to find out about Mm -hmm. any of the secrets of the Knights Templar. They didn't write them down. They were held within the organization. And six years after they were set up and ratified, then we have Arthurian legend. Interesting. And I think that is causal. So that's not a coincidence. That was done on purpose. Because what would happen if they found an interesting story in Edessa? Because what I think they found is sort of like they found my book, as it were, uh, Jesus, King of Edessa. They found that story or they might have found um, the history of the kings of of Judea by Justice of Tiberius. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, we know that book existed because Josephus Flavius talks about it and he hates it because he says it's a tissue of lies. It's nothing to do with the real history. So what he's saying is this is a history of Judea that disagrees with what Josephus Flavius was saying. Okay. And so he hates this book and he writes about it. But that book has gone missing. We don't have that book. It would be very nice to see the opposite view to what (laughs) Josephus is telling us. Um, But we don't have that book. But what if they had found that book, maybe, in Mm -hmm. Edessa? That would be... Heretical, it would be very inflammatory. Um, it's not the sort of history you could write about mm-hmm. in the medieval era. Uh remember, my book is saying that Jesus was a real king. Right. Well, that's heretical for a start. Um, that he didn't die in AD 30, he died in AD seventy. Or well, rather, he was crucified in AD seventy, mm-hmm. but survived, rather like the gospel story says, but it was 40 years later. Huh. And of course, that's exactly what Arthurian legend says. Uh, we have this wonderful because this is where we start getting on to you know what is Arthurian legend because Arthurian legends got nothing to do with King Arthur. <laughs> it's, it's a strange old, um, uh, it's, it's a strange book. The most of this information comes from the later manuscripts, not from um, Geoffrey of Monmouth. So we get things like the Vulgate Cycle. Uh, which Arthurian researchers normally don't touch because it's like 10 volumes, 4,000 pages of impenetrable Arthurian material. So a lot of people skip over it. But if you're going to find out anything that's happening, you you read these odd manuscripts like the Vulgate Cycle, mm-hmm. like High History of the Holy Grail, things of that nature. And they give us a rather different story. And one of the stories they give is this very same 40-year gap. So they're talking about Joseph of Arimathea. Remember, one of the heroes of Arthurian legend is Joseph of Arimathea. Mm -hmm. So we're talking first century. We're talking Judea (laughs) for some reason. Anyway, um, Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus down from the cross. Well, it has to say that in AD 30 because that's the standard classical date. Um, But then he is sent to jail by the Romans, so he's put in jail, and he goes to sleep for three days, and he wakes up 40 years later, and he hasn't aged, he's the same age. So 40 years have just skipped by, so Mm -hmm. that Joseph of Arimathea can become a knight working for Emperor Vespasian in AD seventy. Ah, now that's interesting. So they have the same 40-year gap here that I've already claimed because I wrote about this 40-year gap back in 1997. Mm -hmm. Um, And Arthurian legend has the same gap because there is a dislocation within the gospel story. We'll talk about this when we come on to Odessa in another talk sometime. Sure. Um, But what it's indicating, very strongly indicating, is because we get the same story from josephus flavius josephus flavius uh, was an army commander working for the jewish authorities but then he changed sides and started working for the romans uh, and so after the jewish revolt he was coming back from uh, Tychoa, which is herodium and he saw the three leaders of the jewish revolt being crucified Um, And they were his former compatriots. So he went to the governor and he got permission to take them down early. So they were taken down early. Two of them died and one of them survived. Familiar story. And this was Josephus, Josephus Flavius. And it's quite clear from Arthurian legend that Joseph of Arimathea was Josephus Flavius. Because the surname of Josephus Flavius was Matthias, and they call him Ari. Arba Mathari is what they call him in Arthurian legend. Bar Matthias, son of Matthias, which is exactly what Josephus Flavius was. So they are linking Joseph of Arimathea, because of course nobody knows who this Joseph of Arimathea is. He just right. pops into the story at the end of the Gospels. <laughs> And you're supposed to know who he is because he's not introduced Uh um, and takes Jesus down from the cross. Well, Arthurian legend is saying that that person was Josephus Flavius because that is exactly what Josephus Flavius does in his own books. He takes down the leaders of the Jewish revolt from the cross and one of them survives. Um, It's the same story. So you can get what Arthurian legend is talking about, perhaps. You know, this, yeah. okay, this is, okay, this is a huge, sorry, no, yeah,
0: sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I How long did it take you to get through all this, to figure all this out?
1: 30 I mean, this years.
0: Is of, this is a lot of information. <laughs> I have visions of you sitting at this desk with, like, books stacked everywhere, and, you know, you're cross-referencing.
1: Oh, yes, yeah, very much so. Uh, the, the, there's a, a very well-known painting of um Saul, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um covered with books all over his desk well yeah that was me
0: i just had this i was like wow
1: yeah th- this was very intense this i i did nothing but research this book for two years wow. um working every day at it um doing nothing else um but it was it was valuable a lot of info information dropped out of this story and here is where we come on to the heresies of our theory and legend. And again, standard researchers will not tell you this because they've never read it, because they never bothered to read the Vulgate cycle or high history and various other manuscripts. And so they won't know this. But if we delve into high history, it's called High History of the Holy Grail,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we don't know who wrote it, but it was influential because... It was the basis of Cretian's Percival, mm-hmm. which is a quite a famous manuscript. And it was the basis of um, Wolfram von Eschenbach's uh, Percival. Mm-hmm. They're all based on this high history. But high history is a bit of a heretical sort of manuscript. I mean, it says that King Arthur was uh, the most evil king who had ever been born. Um which is a slight reversal of <laughs> what we expect of Arthurian theory and legend. Right. Um, but it says things that are rather odd, like it says, and I, these are a couple of quotes here. He says, um, Josephus, the good clerk, tells us the good knight, who is Percival, had come, of whom you shall hear his name presently. Mm-hmm. That's from high history. Um, And this Josephus is the son of Joseph of Arimathea. Now that's odd because Josephus is writing about the good knight, Percival, Sir Percival, one of the knights of the round table. Uh, And then it goes on and it says, hear you the history of the most holy vessel that is called the grail. Mm -hmm. Josephus has written this in remembrance by annunciation of the voice of an angel so that the truth might be known. Um, So again, this story is being written by Josephus. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then it says, uh, good knight, uh, who's Percival, was of the lineage of Joseph of Arimathea or uh, Baramacy, as they call him, Arimathea. Um, So Percival was of the lineage of Joseph of Arimathea. And this Joseph uh, was Percival's mother's uncle, who had been a soldier for Pilate for seven years. Uh, Some of the uh, manuscripts say a a soldier of Vespasian. Um, Of this lineage was the good knight, for whose sake this high history was written. Uh, Igles was his mother's name, and King Fisherman was his uncle um and the king of the lower folk was called king pelles and the head of his lineage on his father's side was called nicodemus the nicodemus from the new testament Mm -hmm. so uh, okay so all this is very interesting and it says the same in in um history of the holy grail from the vulgate cycle as well Mm -hmm. so what it's saying here is that percival was the nephew of Joseph of Arimathea. Okay, so Percival is a Arthurian knight of the round table, and he's a nephew of Joseph of Arimathea, who's a first century character, as we all know, who took Jesus down from the cross. And Arthurian legend says was Joseph, uh, Josephus Flavius. So it's, it's plainly saying that Percival, Sir Percival was a first century character in judea
0: huh.
1: nothing to do with britain
0: right.
1: um and then it goes on and it says king hermit came from the forest and could not find his nephew who is percival uh, so he mounted a white mule that he had there the mule had a star on her forehead in the shape of a red cross um, josephus the good clerk tells us that this same mule belonged to joseph of arimathea when he was a soldier working for Pilate, hmm. so King Hermit. So we've got two kings here. We've got King Hermit and King Peles, who are both Arthurian uh, kings, who are you know um, part of the lineage of the Arthurian story, right. and they have a mule that belonged to Josephus uh, Joseph of Arimathea. So either we have a 500-year-old mule or we're talking about the first century again. Right. Uh, And that's a problem. And, and of course, this has been known, although you won't know it from standard history that you read of uh, King Arthur. But it has been known. This has been talked about for 100 years. So William Neitz, he's American, I think, uh, professor, from 1903. So we're going back, you know, more than a century. Right. And he's considered to be the, like the father of Arthurian research. You know, people go back to Nietzsche because he knows the story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Nietzsche says uh, of these sto- stories uh, and of the Vulgate cycle, he says the role of Josephus is of greater importance in our work than that of Joseph. It is to Josephus uh, to whom we owe the tale and he's known as the good clerk and the good hermit. Mm -hmm. Twice the text calls him simply Joseph, and twice he's called Josephus. Nevertheless, it is now generally supposed that the confusion of these two Josephs, Joseph of Arimathea and Josephus Flavius, the Jewish historian, gave rise to the legend of Joseph and his son Josephus, as mentioned above. So he's admitting here that They're talking about Josephus Flavius. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this uh, Josephus is known as um, the good scribe who's a witness to history. Now, who was the good scribe, the good author, who was a witness to history? It's uh, um, Josephus Flavius. And he was the good knight because Josephus Flavius was a knight working for the Judeans before he became a knight working for the Romans. So he was all of these things. Um, And then uh, Ernst Brugger, again, he's an early Arthurian historian, says the same thing. Uh, So Brugger says, Because even if Josephus Flavius was well known as a historian and even much respected and held as a Christian historian, it remains striking that he could record events from British history that occurred many centuries after his death. Mm -hmm. I think these oddities are only the result of a confusion. So people have addressed the problems that exist within Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. That Arthurian legend claims that the original author of Arthurian legend was Josephus Flavius, the first century Judean historian. And that's a problem for anyone who's a Arthurian fundamentalist, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we've just turned the story upside down.
0: Right.
1: It's not talking about Britain. Mm -hmm. It's talking about the Near East. It's not talking about the Dark Ages. It's talking about the first century. So who is the Arthurian character who was in the first century fighting the Romans, as we discussed at the beginning of this talk, Right. uh, who's well known as a king, um who had a great court and all of the knights, 12 knights of the round last supper table. Mm -hmm. That character is the Jesus character.
0: Absolutely. And
1: that is a problem for most people to uh, understand. But we we can get an idea of what they're talking about if I do a little screen share
0: yes there we go go we're back sports fans
1: i can't hear you now um you're muted for some reason
0: i'm muted wow okay i wonder what's going on with that
1: shall i continue i can't hear you at present yes
0: go ahead just just continue
1: You'll have to give me a thumbs up if I should continue. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, right. So, um, so here is we have some of the evidence that points in this direction. So, we're uh, another thing that people don't know about is that the primary symbol of early Judaism was the zodiac. So, and this is Nazarene Judaism, the Judea Judaism of um, King Jesus, because he was said to be a Nazarene. Um, And their primary symbol was actually the zodiac, which is very strange because most people don't know that. So this is the Hamat Tavera zodiac. This is on the Sea of Galilee at Tiberias, uh, and it's in a synagogue. So this is a Judaic uh, zodiac. You can see it's all in Aramaic. But it's the standard zodiac, the same as we have today. Um, And incongruously, we get in the center, we get Helios, (laughs) the sun god, which is highly heretical. You shouldn't have this in a synagogue. Um, You weren't allowed uh, any graven images, let alone a symbol of a Greek sun god being in the middle of a zodiac. Um, But, uh, and and do note that um, the... Helios character in the center is holding a uh, a sort of uh, blue spherical earth in his gravitational grasp. So that we know that the heliocentric model of the uh, solar system was known. This is a first century zodiac. So and this zodiac was owned by Jesus. According to Josephus Flavius, this was owned by Jesus of Gamala Sophias, and Jesus of Gamala was the rebel uh, rebel leader of six hundred rebel fishermen. Now that's interesting as well, but anyway, we'll come on to that later. Um, if, if we can have a quick look in more detail at this one, so in here I'll just expand this a little bit. You can see on the um, Earth it's spherical because it's it's lit on one side and it's darker on the other. And the lines of latitude and longitude are curved, indicating this is a sphere. So, yeah, um, this is um, the heliocentric model of, of the solar system. Hmm. Uh, but what else is this? This is a, a kingly character, Helios surrounded by 12 uh, constellations, 12 disciple constellations. So from Arthurian legend, we have the story that there were three tables that were copies of each other. The first table was the round table Last Supper table of Jesus, which was a round table. It wasn't uh, as portrayed uh, by Leonardo da Vinci. It was a round table with Jesus and the 12 disciples. Um, And I think it was, of course, based upon this design. It was based upon the Zodiac. The second table was the table of Joseph of, um, Joseph of Arimathea. And he had a round table. Uh, with 12 of his disciples. And then the third round table was the round table of King Arthur and his 12 knights. And they were all copies of each other. So the round table of King Arthur was the same as the last supper table because they were related stories. And what I think they were talking about is this, that the round table was a zodiac. Uh, and so the um, Jesus type character should not be, because if we go down to um, a well-known, Oh, before we get there, we've got quite a few of these. This is not the only Zodiac. This is another Zodiac from Galilee. Um, this is the Sepphoris, uh Zodiac. You can see it's another very well-drawn um, Judaic and Greek uh, sort of zodiac with Helios in the centre again, and the twelve constellations. Um, and this is a Christian one. This is um, from again Sea of Galilee, Bet She'an, just on the south of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this is in a Christian monastery, so this is a Christian one. But they've changed the signs of the zodiac into months of the year. Mm-hmm. But in the center, if you look in the center, we see the sun and the moon Mm -hmm. um, as being the two central characters. Now, who was the king and the queen in this early era surrounded by 12 disciples? This was the Jesus character, Jesus and Mary Magdalene surrounded by 12 disciples. That's what it's uh, indicating here. And again, this is based upon the Zodiac. And so we have from British history, we have this one. Let's just increase that a little bit. Um, This is from Winchester. uh, And this is very old. This is uh, from Edward I. We're we're talking 800 years old, this table. Uh, And it's supposed to be a copy of the Arthurian table. uh, Because Arthurian legend was very influential in this early era. And the king on this one was redrawn as Henry VIII. So that's, that's Henry VIII on the top there. And again, this was based upon a zodiac. But they've got the king character in the wrong position because they should have a table like this one. This comes from a Hollywood film. Mm-hmm. And this should be what the table looks like. It should be a table with a hole in the center. Because the king character, the sun character, should be sitting at the um, center of the zodiac, at the center of the table.
0: Sure.
1: And that gives us an idea of how we got this name for this Arthurian character. Uh, Because if we look at a zodiac. um, So if we go back to this one and have a look at a zodiac. Let's zoom that down a little bit um no that's probably not the best image let's have another look oh here's a zodiac let's have a look at that one <clears throat> if you have a zodiac you can either sit In the heavens above looking down at the solar system Mm -hmm. and so you'll see the sun at the center surrounded by all the constellations that go around the uh, ecliptic Um, that's what they're showing in the hamat tavera zodiac this one with the sun in the center surrounded by the signs of the zodiac so you can either have that portrayal Or you can have someone, an observer sitting on the earth, looking up at the heavens above you with the zodiac all around you, the um, ecliptic all around you. And above you in the heavens above are the polar stars, the polar constellations. And of course, the main polar constellation in the north is um, uh, Ursa Major, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is the Great Bear. And of course, King Arthur is named after the great bear. That's where his name comes from. So for a Zodiac, you can either have the sun character in the middle, the the son of God, the Jesus character, as we've seen, the Jesus and Mary character, or you can have um, Ursa Major, the great bear in the center. And therefore, we have a direct comparison between the Jesus character and the Arthur character because these are both... Um, the characters who sit at the center of a zodiac. Like. And that is what they were trying to portray uh, when they were talking about King Arthur. So if I stop sharing there. Yes, what we're, we're saying here um, is that Arthurian legend was oh, right. crafted um, to record the secular history of the Gospels. So the secular jesus character and his knights of the round table because if he was a prince and a king of edessa he would have had his own court with his own um knights as it were of the round table and um what else was i going to talk about here we could actually talk a little bit about the um, about the Holy Grail. So the other thing that comes up within our legend is the Holy Grail, um, which if we read Wolfram von Eschenbach, the Holy Grail um, is, well, it has several, I'm just bringing up another thing. There we go. Um the Holy Grail has several manifestations. It's sort of multifaceted. Um and so on the the base of the Holy Grail, we know it as as a chalice, as the cup that held the blood of uh, Jesus, the cup that was held by uh, Joseph of Arimathea that collected the blood of Jesus. So um, it's, it's a grail, a dish, something to do with blood and therefore mm, something maybe to do with blood lines. Mm-hmm. So we're not just talking about a cup. We're talking about a cup that holds a bloodline. Um, and on the secondary, um, facet of this Holy Grail, uh, from our legend, we get we get uh, an indication that it's connected to a royal family, that it's connected to a bloodline. And we get this from Wolfram von Eschenbach. And uh, he has this story about the Knights of the Round Table and they're initiating a new knight to the Round Table who's fire fits, uh, who was the uh, uh, um, knight who came from the East. Um, yes, while we're just talking about that, uh, Parcival, the work by Wolfram von Eschenbach, again, is another of these interesting texts in that it starts its story just where you would expect it to start Arthurian legend. So it starts the story in Mesopotamia with the story of Gamuret, who was the father of Percival, who is working for a king of Mesopotamia. Again, we see this story is not really connected to Britain at all. Anyway, um, the offspring of of this uh, union in Mesopotamia was Firefitz, Mm -hmm. who was a uh, a half caste I suppose, in the old days, you would call it, um, knight of the round table. And he's being introduced uh, to the round table, and they're going to show him the grail. And so this princess comes uh, before them bearing a uh, green cloth on her arm. And the um, knights say to Firefitz, can you see the grail? And he's looking around and he's trying to search for something that might be recognizable as the grail. And he can't find anything. And he says, well, no, I, I, I can't see the grail. Which is a good indication, again, that you need to know what the story is talking about before you can make sense of it. So poor old firefits can't make any sense of the story whatsoever. Um, And he says, no, I can't see the grail. And of course, all of the other knights fall about laughing because the grail is the princess. Mm -hmm. So the grail is not only a dish, it's also a bloodline. And of course, the princess holds the bloodline. So the grail is, is her womb. So that's the uh, second uh, part of the uh, the Grail. And then the Grail had to be tended by a priesthood
0: mm-hmm.
1: who would venerate the, the Grail. And we can come on to that into a minute because they were the um, the eunuch priests of Galilee. They were known as the Gali or the Galileans. And we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, and they were the keepers of the grail. The keepers, well, the final manifestation of this grail comes from Wolfram von Eschenbach. And uh, he says that the grail was a holy stone, a sacred stone. And so the keepers of the grail were the keepers of the stone. And that's why, of course, the primary disciple to Jesus was Simon, who had the uh, uh, the title of Peter, Peter Kephas, meaning the stone. So Simon was the keeper of the stone. And this was the sacred stone. And in Egypt, it has a long history, this stone. This was the sacred stone of Egypt. So if I quickly do a screen share, if it will allow me to do that. Uh, Share screen and window and share. So that should be coming up. And it should be there now. There we go. So, yeah, this is the um, sacred stone of Egypt. This was known as the Benben um and it was a like a pyramidion that used to be well some said it used to be on the top of the great pyramid but it was known for being on an obelisk at heliopolis and it was a sort of pyramidion it was a small pyramid a conical stone <clears throat> upon which the um phoenix used to stand and you can see the phoenix standing on the ben ben here and this the phoenix is a sun symbol you can see the sunburst. Um, Oh, dear, it's just dropped off my screen. Let me get it back. There we go. Um, you can see the sunburst around the head of the uh, phoenix there. Right. Um, but this um, this stone went on a bit of a tour. Um, and it went over to Greece, where it became the Omphalus stone of Delphi. So this is the Omphalus at Delphi. Now, this is not the original, of course. Right. This is just a copy um and again you can see it's a conical stone um that was is supposed to be a meteorite so that's why it was conical it was supposed to be a fiery meteorite that had come in from the heavens above that's why it was connected with the phoenix because the phoenix was the fiery bird it was a piece of the sun that had broken off from the sun and fallen to earth in, in a big fiery ball and that's part of the reason why it was supposed to be sacred Um, So this was the sacred stone, but the sacred stone went across to um, Persia or Parthia, as it was known. In the centuries just BC, it probably went actually with um, Alexander the Great. And so here it is with Apollo here just sitting on the top of it. And sometimes it has this netting across it for some reason. We're not sure what this netting is all about. But here is the... um, when it went to uh, Persia Uh, and it was revered over there because it's on a lot of their coinage there's a lot of these coins uh, from Persia and then it came back to Edessa we're talking about Edessa again Mm -hmm. and um, here it is in Edessa now in Edessa it was a bit strange because they say it's a cubic Bethel or um, sacred stone but I don't think it was cubic at all. You can see there's a cube there inside a, inside a temple uh, with little legs on the bottom of it. And on the second one, you can see a cube in a temple that if you squint, you can probably see a wheel at the bottom of it. So it's sitting on like a cart or something. Well, I don't think this is the stone. I think this is the Beth-el. This is the house of God, they call it, a Beth-el. Um, and it's a very small house of God. It's it's the Ark of the Covenant.
0: Mm.
1: So it's a box that holds the sacred stone. Let's zoom out a little bit. Um, so it's, it's a box that holds the stone. And uh, that is known as a Beth El. And I think I I think that the uh, stone was inside the box because, well, I mean, if you read the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant held two stones, two stones Mm -hmm. which were um, written on by the hand of God. Um, So it's the same sort of story in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's beginning to jump all over the place for some reason. Let's get it back. Oh, dear. Stop jumping. Um, so I think that is the box that uh, held the Omphala stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, um, a sacred stone inside the box, but it didn't stay there. It went down a little bit further and eventually in the second century. So we're talking first century, second century here. Uh, the stone was in Edessa, and then it went down to Syria little bit further south and this is the stone in Syria and again we can see it's a conical stone uh, inside a temple and you can see it's embossed with the um, symbol of the phoenix Uh, you've got two wings to the left and right in the center is the body and the tail and then you can see two legs at the bottom and the head at the top that is the phoenix so it's embossed again with the image of the phoenix
0: Absolutely. Now
1: down in Syria it was known as the Elagabal, uh, which means the um, mountain of God. So Ella and gabal gabal meaning uh, hill and Ella being the Aramaic for God. sometimes it was called the Helio gabal mm-hmm. using the uh, Greek name Helios so it was again it was like a sun symbol and this was the sacred stone which I think was held by uh, Jesus and uh, Peter when it was in Edessa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <coughs> but then it went to Rome because one of these princes of this region uh, of Syria. So here it's in Syria, um, just south of Damascus at a place called Homs and Hammer, um, uh, which was known as. Uh, Emessa in those days so we had two city states one was called Edessa and the other was called Emessa um, and then it was taken by one of the princes of this uh, principality who became the emperor of Rome so this is the mad Elagabalus this mm-hmm. is Elagabalus and this is a gold coin uh, from Rome of the Elagabal when it was taken to Rome let's have a better look at that. There we go. That's a better version. So this is the Elagabal when it was in, in Rome. And again, you can see it's a conical stone and you can see it's embossed with the uh, image of the uh, uh, phoenix on the s- side of it. And it's in a chariot being a quadriga chariot, no less, a four-horse chariot being taken around Rome. And uh, Elagabalus was, um, he's not a very well-known um emperor of rome we're talking about 220 a.d something like that and elagabalus was the mad syrian uh emperor who was a eunuch um he he castrated himself Hmm. because the priests of this stone had to be eunuchs wow they had to be castrated And so he castrated himself which they didn't like in rome because it was actually illegal in rome you're not supposed to do this Mm -hmm. um so he wasn't very well liked in rome and so he was murdered after only about four or five years and then the stone goes missing from history and so we lost it and we don't know where it is and lots of people have claimed to have had it Um, It's even claimed to be up in Scotland as the Stone of Scone you've probably heard of in -hmm. Scottish history. Um, That's supposed to be this stone. But of course, there's no evidence uh, that it was that it is in Scotland at all. It's a bit of a topic now because we're just having the coronation uh, of Charlie Boy. He's going to become the new king of England, king of Britain, I suppose I better say. Yes. Um, And this was the stone that they're supposed to sit on during the coronation it's the stone of scone but of course the stone of scone that was brought to Westminster Abbey by Edward I was not this stone what they said they did is that um, Edward I demanded this stone because they he knew they had it in Scotland and they roughed up a lump of sandstone and gave him (laughs) a piece of sandstone instead and that's the piece of sandstone that's been in the coronation throne in Westminster Abbey for 800 years or whatever it was oh. until the Scots uh, took it back again in the 1970s. I think they ran off with it in the 1970s. So I don't know what they're going to do with that, whether they're going to bring it down from Scotland again just for the ceremony or or not. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, so that'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so this stone is still... Part of modern sort of history, you know, we're still talking about this stone even today. And um, I I was a little bit amazed um, because it appeared in a film. I was sitting in a a cinema and I was watching a a Bond film, James Bond. Uh, I think it was Skyfall, if I remember correctly. Not quite sure. And the heroes were running around North Africa, and they ended up in this meteorite crater, and they were taken by the terrible baddie. They were taken by this guy to this planetarium. And for no apparent reason, because it didn't seem to have any connection with the rest of the story, they took James Bond and his uh, sidekick, his uh, girlfriend, and they showed him. The Elagabal. Wow. And here it is in a Bond film <laughs> for, for absolutely no good reason whatsoever. This is the Elagabal, the sacred stone that's been running around uh, for the last three and a half thousand years from Egypt to uh, Greece to uh, Persia to Edessa to Emessa to Rome. To maybe Scotland, we don't know because we don't have any proof. But here it is in a James Bond film. And you can see it's a meteorite. And it's introduced in the film as being a meteorite. Oh. And the, the baddie in the film gives this very strange speech about this being the, the oldest stone in the universe and things like this and how important the, and how lonely this stone is. it had no connection with the rest of the film whatsoever. So I don't know what this speech was all about. But here is, if anyone wants to know what the sacred stone uh, is, this is what it would look like if we actually had it. Wow. The original Ella Gabal. So there we go. This
0: is just so fascinating to me. I'm, I'm in awe of the research you've done, you know, because it's just, it's just, it's incredible.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing how it all ties in, because you've got to remember, um, I didn't know anything about this. Right. So uh, when I started writing my book about Edessa, I had never heard of Odessa. Right. Um, and, and so the book was actually about Queen Helena. It was nothing to do with Odessa because I'd never heard of the place. And then during the research, this place called Odessa came up on, on my radar and suddenly that fitted into the story so well that it had to be a part of the story. And so the book changed and it became Jesus King King of Odessa. Um, and then, you know, things like this um, sacred stone, I'd never, never heard of before, and suddenly, you know, you start researching it and it fits into the story so well
0: right. with,
1: you know, Peter being um, the stone, Peter mm-hmm. Kephas, the um, primary disciple of Jesus. Uh, and it fits in so well with a stone, with that stone. And then the story of Jesus fits in so well because um, the Gali priests who looked after these stone were all eunuchs as we were saying before and Mm -hmm. then you go to acts of the apostles within the gospels and you suddenly find that jesus asked for his disciples to castrate themselves wow and again people won't know that because of course the priesthood are not going to tell you that so unless you've actually read the entire gospels yourself you're not going to know this so this comes from matthew 19 uh verses 11 and 12 And Jesus said, all men cannot receive this saying, except those to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were born from their mother's womb. And there are some eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. But there are some eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. It's a clear request by Jesus for his disciples to castrate themselves Uh and the only reason you would want to do that is if you wanted to become a galley priest because the priests of the stone were known as the galley or the galileans and they had to be eunuchs they had to be castrated and remember that jesus and uh, peter were both called galileans Uh so it's saying that peter was a galilean Uh he was a eunuch and jesus eventually was a eunuch um And this was a part of first century history. Uh, We have this from Lucian. In fact, we have it from quite a few authors. But Lucian says uh, of the galley, he says, on these days, men become the galley, the galley priests. Uh, For while some are playing flutes and performing rites, a frenzy comes on at some of them. And he throws off his clothes and rushes to the center with a great shout. And he takes up a sword um, and immediately castrates himself. And then he rushes through the city, holding his testicles in his hands, and he takes female clothing and women's adornment from whichever house he throws the testicles into. That was the um, festival at which the galley actually became the galley that became the eunuch priests. Um, And then they were involved in the Jewish revolt. Mm -hmm. um so josephus flavius again giving real history here so um you know most of what josephus flavius actually says is normally historical it's normally true and he says the galileans indulged themselves in feminine wantonness remember that jesus was a galilean Mm -hmm. they decked their hair and put on women's garments and smeared uh, their faces with ointments that they might appear very comely They had paints under their eyes and imitated not only the ornaments, but also the lusts of women. But while their faces looked like faces of women, they killed with their right hands. And while their gait was effeminate, they attacked men and became warriors and drew their swords from under their finely decked dresses and ran everybody through that they alighted upon. Now, so the Galileans dressed as women um because they were Eunuch e- priests and people will say well what on earth does that have to do with uh christianity uh-huh. uh well they still do that today and people won't uh they'll, they'll throw up their arms in horror and say no that's not true but if we do a quick screen share, now that should be coming across to you as a screen share, hopefully. Right
0: there, right there. Yeah.
1: So okay. if I run up to here, we should see a cardinal. Yes. And what's he doing? He's wearing a red dress. Right. And, of course, Sir Galahad, who was also a galley, that's where he gets his title from. He was a galley priest, Sir Galahad. Uh, he was known as the Red Knight. And so, of course, Sir Galahad would have worn a red dress. And again, they still do it today. This is the Catholic Church. If you go to Rome, the cardinals still right. wear red dresses and nice frilly um, petticoats. They are still doing exactly the same as in the first century, according to Josephus, according to Lucian, according to the Gospels, and according to Arthurian legend. They're still doing the same thing today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this, this is an ancient history that has flowed down through the millennia. And it's flowed down in, in various aspects that we don't realize what it's talking about, like Arthurian right. legend. Because right. it's so heretical. Right. You can imagine someone talking about this in the f- in the middle ages, in the <laughs> 12th, 13th century. You would be slow roasted right. over a fire for this sort of heresy. And so you could not talk about it openly. The only way you could talk about this is if you crafted this story in such a fashion that you hid the basis of the story. Mm -hmm. And they hid the basis of the story in Arthurian legend. But they were always doing this. There's loads of these stories going around that you won't realize are actually telling a story unless someone has introduced you to that uh, little heresy, that little story. I mean, a classic one is uh, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Mm -hmm. What's all that about? It's actually a story about the movements of the heavens. But you would never understand it if you just look on the surface and and see snow white as being a fairy tale because it's not snow white is the snow white moon that is who she is and the wicked print uh, print uh the wicked uh witch is is the um milky way and the wicked witch is is um doesn't like um snow white because she is much brighter than the Milky Way. And so she gives Snow White a corset. And she puts the corset on Snow White and pulls it tighter and tighter. So she gets thinner and thinner, which is what the moon does as it goes through the sky. It gets thinner and thinner as mm-hmm. it gets up to the new moon. And then, of course, when we get to the new moon, the moon dies. It's dead, it's black, just like Snow White dies. Um, but at the new moon. Um the moon can be kissed by the sun because these uh, uh these solar eclipses only happen at the new moon mm-hmm. when the moon kisses the sun in a solar eclipse and so they kiss each other and then they merge and they happen to be exactly the same size which must have been very mysterious uh in the ancient world that the moon and the sun are exactly the same size and they cover each other and they are in flagranti delecto, this is the sacred marriage in the heavens above. So they kiss each other, just as the, the the prince, the solar prince, kisses Snow White, and then she comes back to life, which is exactly what the moon does. Oh, sorry, f- I, I forgot uh, at the start of this <clears throat> that Snow White is followed by the seven dwarfs. Right. And of course that's exactly what happens in the heavens above the moon is followed by the seven planets right which follow in a big long line along the ecliptic following the moon they are the seven dwarfs the the, the smaller um celestial bodies in the heavens above so after the eclipse the moon comes back to life again the new moon is over and we get the new waxing moon is it waxing or waning yeah it's waxing isn't it when it gets bigger it's waxing when it gets smaller it's waning Mm -hmm. um so the snow white story is uh a story of the movements of the heavenly bodies in the solar system but you would never know that if you just read it as being a fairy tale right so you can see how this information can be held in plain sight, you don't have to hide it. It's out there. Fairy tale of, of Snow White has been out there for hundreds of years. <clears throat> it come came from um, the Brothers Grimm, didn't it? It's a Grimm's mm-hmm. fairy tale, right? Um, and they were writing two, three hundred years ago. I forget when the Brothers Grimm were around, but it's a long time ago. Um, and so this information is in plain sight. You don't have to hide it. Same with Arthurian legend. Mm-hmm. This is what I would say is a fifth gospel. You know, we've got the four gospel. Um, no, the sixth gospel. Mm-hmm. We've got the four gospels. We've got Acts of the Apostles. And then we have our and legend. But you don't have to actually sort of keep it secret in a secret society. You can actually print it. Because only the people in the secret society will know what it's talking about. Because you'll never know what Arthurian legend is talking about unless someone whispers in your ear and says, First century, talking about Jesus. Ah, now I understand the story. So <clears throat> you you can keep these secrets in plain sight and that's what they were doing because it was the only way to tell this story because otherwise you would get slow roasted as lots of people did during the uh, catholic era um you get slow roasted over a um a nice bonfire i mean like even for the heresy of writing the first uh, new testament in english um the guy was burnt at the stake um I always forget who this guy's name was. Um, anyway, it was, uh, he was burnt at the stake at Vilvoorde mm-hmm. in Belgium. He was uh, a British guy, and uh, he wrote the first New Testament in English. But because the Catholic Church didn't want you to know what the New Testament was talking about, they had banned the translation of the New Testament from the Greek and from the Latin and so for the heresy of writing the new testament in english he was burnt at the stake um and those bibles if you ever get one of those are extremely rare and very very expensive because there weren't very many were made um i wonder if i can quickly look it up um <clears throat> um, Tyndale There we go, of course This yes, is the Tyndale Bible So, um, yeah Poor old Tyndale was um, burnt at the stake
0: Wow
1: In Villevoorde in Belgium um, And there's a little statue uh, A little um, plinth there with, with his details on it it's not hmm. very exciting. They they just got a small plinth there in the uh, town of Vilvoorde. It's right just north of um, uh, Brussels International Airport, if anyone's there at the time. I well worth seeing. You.
0: I want to thank you. This is also fascinating.
1: It's amazing what you can find in Arthurian I, legend, isn't it? It
0: works so much. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm never going to look at it the same way again, you know. <laughs> but it all makes perfect sense. You know, it does. Like-
1: I, I I like to say that these are um not jigsaw puzzles. Uh yeah, jigsaw puzzles is the best. And I used to say they're crosswords, but I think a jigsaw puzzle is is a better analogy.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: in a jigsaw puzzle you get all of these little pieces, all with a different part of the picture on it. Uh but if you've got the correct um jigsaw puzzle with the correct format, all of the pieces will fit together. Mm-hmm. And they will form a coherent picture of this history. If you're trying to fit pieces in that don't really fit into this story, the pieces in the jigsaw puzzle will not fit together. We all know that when you're doing jigsaw puzzles and you can press as hard as you like, but they're not going to go into the the jigsaw. They will only fit together if you've got a piece of true history. Uh And then they all nicely mesh together and... Not only do they fit together, but they actually form a coherent picture of the jigsaw. And that is what this history does. And it, all of the pieces fit together. And all of the new history that I keep finding fits into that same picture. Uh, and that's happened time and time again. Later on, we can talk about the Hukok mosaic. Um, but I, as as it were, wrote about the Hukok mosaic and put it on the front of my book, Six years, uh, no, four years before the mosaic was even discovered. Incredible. So it, it was predictive. I was talking about this guy and I had a picture of him on the front of my book, on the uh, Jesus King of Edessa book, before that mosaic had even been discovered, mm-hmm. which is why when it when it was first published, I knew exactly who the guy was. <laughs> and the archaeologists didn't, who were working on this uh, It's it's a mosaic from uh, Judea again. And the archaeologists didn't know who this guy was. But I did because I'd all written about him. So, yeah, it's an interesting story and it does make sense of uh, this history. Mm -hmm. And as I said at the beginning, it has this strange conundrum that it, although I'm working from a historical perspective, not a religious perspective, it indicates that 90% of the New Testament is correct. It's a true history, except for the fact that a lot of this happened 40 years later than they normally say, so it happened in the AD 60s. And most of the characters are fairly well known because they were princes and kings of Edessa, this uh, city-state that's been deleted from history. And it was deleted on purpose. This hasn't happened by accident. It was deleted on purpose by the Romans, by Vespasian, Emperor Vespasian, who became emperor at that time, Mm -hmm. because they didn't want you to know that this guy rebelled against Rome. Right. Of course, they they don't want uh, rebellions in the Roman Empire. So they don't want people praising and venerating a rebel against Rome. Um, and so they recast this this guy into this new guy's uh, as a, a pauper. So he's no longer, although he's called a king on 36 occasions, he's not really a king. He's only a pauper. Um, and now they put into his mouth things like, you know, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Mm-hmm. So suddenly it becomes very Rome friendly. Oh, now we've we've got to. Uh, Respect Rome and pay our taxes and all of that sort of business. Um, So they made it, they crafted it into a story which was perfect for the Roman Empire as a bastion against the more messianic, the more revolutionary uh, sects of um, Judaism, which included the Nazarene. They were a messianic sect. And remember that Jesus was a Nazarene, of course. So that's why this story was crafted in the fashion that it was. It was deliberately done by Rome to cover up the fact that there had been a revolt in that region uh, against Rome. So it was very clever. It's very astute, very clever Roman propaganda. And it's propaganda that we're still using even today. Absolutely.
0: How can people find you?
1: Um, yeah, um, probably best <clears throat> on um, my Facebook site, which is ralph.ellis.144 on Facebook. Um, I have a website, which is edfu-books.com. Uh, uh, um, that's got all the books on it. Most of the books are on uh, Amazon. Try to get the ones which are 2017 and later. They are the latest editions, um, and I've got a, uh, a video channel which is, uh, I think, it's just called Ralph Ellis. If you put uh, do a search for YouTube Ralph Ellis, um, my videos are the ones with a, um, a red and gold phoenix on the thumbnail. That that will be my ones. So yeah, various ways of getting uh, hold of me, and <clears throat> I do. Um, write quite a lot on Facebook. So that's quite active. I have quite a lot of posts and a lot of feedback on uh, Facebook.
0: I want to thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. My God, I learned so much. That's why I like having guests on like you because it it, it changes my perspective, you know, of history. So I want to thank you so much. I would love to have you on again to talk about other things. You know, because I I look through your books and I see that you have other topics that are just as fascinating as this.
1: Yes, there's quite a lot of topics. I go through the whole of the uh, Bible, so there's a lot of other topics.
0: Absolutely. All right, Ralph. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I appreciate it. You have a good, good, good rest of your evening.
1: Indeed. Thank you.
0: All right. Bye-bye. All right. I mean, I, I didn't lie. I mean, I learned so much, and I hope you guys did too. Fantastic guest. Loves his stuff. Did a lot of research throughout his life on this stuff, and you have to admire guy. I mean, I'm never going to look at King Arthur the same way again. All right. Anyway, tomorrow I'll be back at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with the show. I don't know what show it is yet, but I will be back. Uh, But uh, have a good night, guys. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And, again, if you're watching from Facebook or YouTube and you haven't done so already and you like what you hear, please be sure to hit that follow button and hit that subscribe button. All right. Well, I will see you. Have a great evening you guys